there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us today. I just had the great pleasure of talking with Sienna Craig about her new book, Healing Elements, Efficacy and the Social Ecologies of Tibetan Medicine. This was published with the University of California Press in 2012. This is a book that's not just a really brilliant exploration of the practices of Tibetan medicines in the 21st century in a range of different ethnographic contexts. It's also a huge pleasure to read. It's written in a kind of very affecting writerly style that makes it fun, it makes it transporting, and it makes it very transformative as a narrative, regardless of what field or expertise you're coming to the book with or without. The interview is quite extensive, so I'm going to keep my introductory comments short, but I'll just say that the book really takes on the idea of a traditional medicine as part of a dichotomy with what we might think of as modernity. It humanizes the practice of the practices of Tibetan medicines by bringing us into the experiences of many different kinds of individuals that are experiencing, producing, and practicing Tibetan medicines in lots of different kinds of related but distinct contexts. And it's also a really, really good story. It's also kind of a model of what can happen when you work on material that you care deeply about. And that care is on every single page of this book. So this is a book that's going to be really required reading for anybody who works in the academic or practical fields of traditional medicines, certainly Tibetan medicine, but also with uh, related and allied fields that have to do with uh, what's typically called complementary or alternative medicine or the study of traditional medicines. But it's also a really wonderful addition to the literature of modern Tibet, to the literature of modern China and also to the history of science and medicine more broadly. So I really, as I've mentioned already, really, really enjoyed this book. I got a lot out of it. I hope you enjoy the book, and I hope you also enjoy the conversation. We're here today to talk with Sienna Craig about her new book, Healing Elements, Efficacy and the Social Ecologies of Tibetan Medicine. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Sienna, and thanks very much for making time in the middle of the teaching semester to talk with me today about your fabulous, fabulous new book. Thank you so much, Carla. It's really a pleasure to be with you. So could you start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by saying a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, how did you come to the study of Tibet? Sure. So uh, the story of how I came to study uh, Tibet and culturally Tibetan communities in the Nepal Himalaya uh, begins exactly, almost exactly 20 years ago. I was an undergraduate study abroad student in Nepal and um, went to Nepal at that time uh, as a religion major, comparative religion major, thinking that I would go and uh, do some work on on women's religious experience in Tibetan um, uh, monastic communities, but um, soon got pulled into a place that that led me down um, the track, if you will, of Tibetan medicine, um, but actually first by being pulled into uh, the world of veterinary medicine and how people take care of animals in the in the Tibetan cultural world. So that's where it began. Wow. And you talk a little bit about this as well at the beginning of your book. So I, um, it's a really fascinating story, and I urge all listeners to go and, and take a look because it's also kind of, for me at least, reading this, 
really a model of the kind of work that can come out of following your interests and your passions and um, the road that leads you to your academic subject. So it's a really, I think, inspiring story as well. Thank you. So the current book that we're talking about today explores, among many other things, and we'll get to many aspects of this, um, I imagine, in the course of our conversation, the practices and contexts of what you alternately call Tibetan medicines or Soa Rikpa in Nepal and China today. So how did you find yourself working on this particular topic? Can you situate this specific study within the larger trajectory of your research? Sure. The the study of, of Tibetan medicine or Tibetan medicines, uh, so Arigpa, which means the science of healing uh, roughly in Tibetan, began really by working with lineage-based practitioners in northern Nepal who I, I met, uh, again, 20 years ago in great part because they knew something about horses as well as taking care of humans. And in, in the course of those relationships, I quickly realized um, the profound sorts of change that this generation of practitioners were navigating from a shift uh, between institutional uh, or rather lineage-based practice practice to institutions and the creation of those institutions um, to questions about the future of knowledge transmission and even the future of medicinal plants in some of these parts of the high Himalaya. Uh, the Tibet part came basically through a combination of, of synergies uh, and, um, what to say, um, national misfortunes, which led to uh, interesting opportunities for me. I had planned to do all of my PhD research in Nepal and in different parts of Highland Nepal than places I had spent time before. But uh, I was setting out to do field work in um, 2000 and. 2002 at a time when the Nepali government was uh, in a state of emergency and very unstable and at the same time got an opportunity through one of my advisors uh, and uh, colleague Vincent Adams to come uh, work on a project in Lhasa and uh, it was as I set out, unclear exactly to me how I was going to make a dissertation out of all of this and where and how Tibetan medicine would continue to fit into that, how I would square the experiences of folks from Highland Nepal with people working in uh, large state institutions of Tibetan medicine in a place like Lhasa. But uh, it did come together in the end. Now, we've talked a little bit about this before um, we started the interview, but this study had its roots in your dissertation research, but doesn't exactly recapitulate what's in the dissertation. There were some transformations along the way. So would you talk a little bit about those transformations? Were there any um, major changes that mark the process for you? Were there any major transformations in the way you were thinking about the project that shaped the way you wrote um, the book and that importantly differed from how you approached the dissertation? Absolutely. Uh my my dissertation ended up being um, a much more focused study on the emergence of a pharmaceutical industry, really, around Tibetan medicine. And it came out of being based in Lhasa for those two years while I was also working on uh, a project that was synergistic with my PhD research and uh, emerged in, in a sense through through one chapter of uh, both my PhD and what became this book around women's and children's health or maternal health in particular. But um, my PhD advisor was always warning against 
uh, fighting off too large a project, really, for the dissertation itself. And after two years of, of living and working in Lhasa, although I had been working with practitioners in Nepal um, since, uh, in some cases, since the early 90s, in other cases, since the late 90s, it, trying to fit Nepal into my PhD felt like a um, an impossible task, and it felt better to keep things just focused on the you know what I had gathered in these two years in uh, in Lhasa, Tibet. So that's how uh, the decision to to focus my PhD in the way that I did emerged. But um, in sitting down to think about how to write uh, a book and how to transform my PhD into, at least in part, um, a, a very different book, I really felt like there was no way I couldn't include Nepal because the story of the book and the story I, I really felt I needed to tell was a comparative one, was a story about how, um, on the surface, very different groups of practitioners connect with each other, how they, um, how their struggles inform each other, how their practice uh, merges and diverges at different points. So um, I had to back up a little bit in order to see uh, the broader picture. And that's also not necessarily an easy thing to do for a PhD because it's so much about diving in. Right. Now, one of the really wonderful things about the book um, as we have it, uh, and as I've, as I've already mentioned, it's a great book, and one of the great things about it is how readable it is. Um, it's really a pleasure to read, and that's really something that we don't often find in an academic book. It's certainly not an academic book that treats um, in such a sophisticated way this whole suite of issues surrounding medicine and health and efficacy and evidence and um, many, many other of the topics we're going to talk about. Can you talk a little bit about your decision to write the book the way you did? How did you approach the kind of narrative arc um, that you set up in the book and the kind of writing style that you brought to bear in the chapters, which ranges from dialogue to a very, a very personal feeling um, way of describing and narrating the events here? Well, I think fundamentally, um, I, I have always felt like I... I was too invested in the people in this book and the um, the the moments of both personal and professional intensity and transformation um, to to not write the book in a sense in this way. Uh, I also I love to write. It's a it's a craft and a discipline that means a lot to me. Um, and so uh, this is. This is not the first time, in a sense, that I tried to, to integrate different narrative styles or the tools of creative nonfiction into ethnography. Uh, and there are many people that do it better than me, and many people that I've that I've learned from. Um, the the person that's coming to mind right now is Kieran Narayan. Um, and so reading works by people whose whose voices I think come through clearly in their text, but whose but but whose ethnographies also do or can read um, like like stories uh, uh, was something I went to a lot while while thinking about the structure. The structure itself changed over time. Um, initially, I had uh, an idea of, of actually constructing the book around um, specifically the, the five elements that are important in um, Tibetan medical theory. And I wrote sort of short 
um, like prose poems that framed each of these chapters and 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 you know that was that was fun and it helped me get into the into the writing but in the end they didn't belong in the book so you know there are a lot of things like that that are um that didn't end up in the book but that helped me find the particular voice i think i needed uh, to write to write this story um and by story i don't mean that it's that it's not true or it's not based in real ethnography but i do see it very much as something that has um an arc to it and a, a beginning a middle and an end now Two central questions frame the book, and you set these out at the beginning. How is efficacy determined? And what is at stake in those determinations? And the chapters are going to sequentially introduce several practitioners, patients, individuals, contexts, and different kinds of landscapes and topographies through which we're going to see the emergence and um, construction and destruction of different ways of thinking about and making efficacy in the context Mm. you're looking at. One of the things that comes up again um, right at the beginning of the book, but that resurfaces periodically, and so it emerged to me as being something that was very, that seemed at least very important from the perspective of one reader to how you were thinking about and framing the topics, was this idea of social ecologies. So you describe the book as a study of the various various social ecologies in which, um, and this is a quote, therapies are made and evaluated practitioners are trained and patients are treated. And you evoke various um, concepts used by some other authors, ethnographers that help us think through what this might mean as a social ecology, the mindful body, the body ecologic, the body mind world dynamic. So I wonder if you could get us started in this exploration of the landscape of the book by talking a little bit about this idea of social ecologies and and its centrality or not um, to the way you're thinking about and structuring the narrative. Sure. Uh, I I think you did a very thoughtful job of framing that. I think that I, I landed on the idea of social ecologies for a number of different key reasons. Um, on the one hand, um, place is really important in this book and trying to think not about place, not just as um, the physical space of a factory or uh, the, the shrine room in a village doctor's house, but rather the ways that um, uh, ecologies in the broadest sense of the term and, and, and the places in which um, particular plants grow or particular kinds of knowledge is transmitted uh, makes a difference uh, in how medicine is effective or why it isn't effective at a certain moment or to a certain person. And um, I've also been influenced over, I would say, the years of um, becoming uh, an, an ethnographer and an anthropologist by works by people like Gregory Bates. And, and I, I was very much, I returned to and very was very much influenced by his concepts of ecology of mind as I was thinking about this book. So ecologies are not only places in the world that are populated by, by people and other beings, such as uh, to be social spaces or social environments, but also um, an ecology of mind was a way to think about the different um, 
and, and the shared ecologies of mind was also another way to think about social ecologies of, of practitioners and what they know and how they know it and how they challenge each other um, or um, the, the dynamics within a family that would help them or, or hinder them sometimes in um, figuring out how to navigate the different uh, healthscapes that were available to them. So, it, 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 the idea of social ecologies kind of works on, on those two levels. And then finally, it just seemed like a, a concept, a theoretical concept that fit Tibetan social realities pretty well or ethnographic realities pretty well because of the ways that in Tibetan vernacular people talk about and words evoke this connection between um, uh, ecological and social worlds and, and even uh, moral concepts of those worlds. Great. Thank you so much. Now, as we get into the body chapters of the book, um, the first two chapters each chronicle one day spent in one of the main ethnographic sites featured in the book. The first chapter chronicles one day in 2008 in the life of Amchi from rural Nepal in Mustang. Am I pronouncing that right? Uh, yeah, actually, it's Mustang. Mustang. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, Mustang it, Sally. Yep, I always yep. go to Sally. So yep. Mustang. Okay. Well, and that was one of the reasons this is where I first went when I was interested in horses and everybody thought, oh, of course, you know, it's where the Mustangs are, but um, it's actually, it, it's, it's something different. But Okay. So to, we're in 2008. We're in one day in the life of two brothers who are both practitioners in Mustang, Nepal. You take us into the... I'm, also probably going to, I pronounce everything wrong, so I should tell you that I pronounce You're doing great. wrong. You're doing um, great. So listeners know this, but you should also know this. The Lo Kun Fun Traditional Herbal Medicine Clinic and School, and these two brothers who run it. So that this chapter emphasizes through this day in the life, the many different responsibilities, the different kinds of responsibilities that are taken on um, by a rural doctor, Amchi, Okay, in a national context in which Tibetan medicine is not recognized by the government. So could you talk a little bit about, um, could you introduce these brothers for us and talk a little bit about this issue of the different kinds of responsibilities emerging in this context for both of them and, and what that does to help us understand the larger points that you're making in the chapter? Sure. Um, the brothers are folks that I have known um, since 1995. Um, one is a is a householder, a tantric householder priest. Um, the other is a celibate monastic, a monk. And they uh, have been good friends and interlocutors for uh, for many, many years. Part of what inspired me to write um, these first two chapters in this way, but really the inspiration for that form came from thinking about the life that these two people lead and, and literally going through this day and then reflecting on it in my field notes later on. Um, and then turning that eventually into this chapter. Um, the point, the, the, the main points that I wanted to make with this are, are one that um, we tend to think about uh, doctors or practitioners of medicine as just doing that, just being uh, focused on, on um, the, the practice of medicine. But for so many people and so much of the world who practice different forms of healing, that's not the case at all. And um, I, I thought that the dynamic between these two brothers as they navigate between their responsibilities as ritual practitioners to the local king of this region or um, uh, two individuals trying to navigate across languages and continents the 
the running of a local NGO and neg- negotiations with donors to being part of an extended family and uh, to being responsible for a whole host of young students for whom they are not just teachers, but also um, uh, in loco parentis figures and and um, navigating through all of these different worlds at once. At the same time, I wanted to to give a vision of what it means to actually be the kind of practitioner who still not only is transmitting knowledge to a younger generation and practicing, but also who is still making, uh, they still make their own medicines and they're concerned about the, the future of medicinal plants. And part of the, the chapter is about the, the cultivation fields that they are um, attempting to, to manage um, in, in fields outside of the village where they live. So, I also wanted to get across very quickly in the book, um, or get through rather, to cut through the idea that somehow being a traditional doctor means that you're not modern or means that you're not somehow connected to um, uh, global networks. And, And hopefully the chapter also does that. Absolutely. And one of the, um, a couple of this really striking ways, at least for me, that the chapter does that are bringing us into the process by which, the, you're not just um, observing, you know, what we might think of as sort of a stereotypical traditional medical doctors. You're also working on grant proposals with them, and that that, that process of being actively involved in not just going to the um, the cultivation grounds for medicinal plants, but also working through the nitty gritty of putting together a grant proposal um, was actually really interesting and important, I think, to have right at the beginning of the book. Another thing that was really striking, and this is going to be interesting to any readers who come to this with a deep concern with the history of science or the history of STS, was this phenomenon whereby you describe translating the kinds of records that are being kept in the logbooks into statistics. What happens yes. when you're, you know, which is a, a huge transformation. Um, that's really, really fascinating here. So um, I'll just signal that for listeners. Um, there's a lot in here that really speaks to not just uh, East Asian history, but also really important transformations within the history of STS and the history of the sciences that I think are really important. And actually, just to add one thing there, the the that is something that I am still exploring to this day. In fact, I just met with Tenzin, one of the doctors in this chapter, uh, last month at a conference in Korea. And part of what we were discussing was precisely this ongoing history of these records and uh, what they mean, what they hinder, what they allow for him. And it's very clear still that um, even though this is now four or five years since the, the, the material at the core of this chapter, that the the numbers um, are not all at all about the practice of medicine to him um, or or very in a very tangential way but they are absolutely essential to how he envisions the possible futures for this practice for people who are younger than he is um, uh, especially in connection to um, government recognition and and um, the the issues around legibility you know, sort of making visible uh, the work of healing that they do and this integration of computer technology and of sort of data or the transformation of knowledge into the terminology and form of data also comes up 
albeit in a very different context in the next chapter. So chapter two also chronicles one day spent um, in one of the main ethnographic sites of the book, but here it's a day in 2010, and it's spent at Arura Tibetan Medical Group, which is a major Tibetan medical institution in urban China in Qinghai province, and so it's a very different setting. You note in uh, this part of the book that among the many differences between these two settings, there's not only here a more developed governmental structure behind the practice, but also that there are more daily transactions and translations. And by the end of our conversation, as by the end of the book, we'll get to translation um, explicitly if, if we don't before then. Translations across metal systems here than there were in um, the context in Nepal in the previous chapter. And these systems include biomedicine, Tibetan medicine, Chinese medicine, etc. There, there, um, these are just a few of the many systems um, across which translations happening. Now, this chapter emphasizes the engagement between Soarikpa the biomedical sciences, and commercial pharmaceutical production. And a lot of the story happens in the course of your uh, observing doctors, watching doctors prescribe medicines, watching doctors um, in action in their practice in this hospital. So just as you did um, in the first chapter, could you talk about um, that process? What was uh, perhaps the most striking experience for you in the course of this day watching um, medicinal practices, and how does that help us understand, similarly, um, the larger kind of work that's happening in this chapter? Well, I think one of the um, the key moments for me in that day, and therefore also in this chapter, were um, both the the first doctor I observed in the in the morning. Um, he's uh, his name is Namlakur, and he's in the GI and internal medicine unit. And then later on in the day, watching one of the one of the most, and in fact, now he's the most senior uh, practitioner in this institution, navigate with patients. And um, part of what sticks with me is um, uh, the ways that in, in both cases, the practitioner moved between um, oral and written modes of, of communicating, uh, not only with patients, but with the students that were around them and in the room, and how in those transitions between local dialects of Tibetan and in certain cases also Chinese, um, uh, and then what got put in the computer or written on a prescription form, the, the two different worlds that those that those ways of communicating came to uh not just represent but came to be uh and i think the other the other thing that um remains striking to me in this chapter in a different way than the first one is actually the 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 agency if you will of patients and the ways that patients would negotiate and navigate and push and question even these very these very senior doctors not in a disrespectful way at all but in a way that that showed their own struggles to integrate or to you know translate or wrap their heads around the different possibilities for diagnosis and for treatment that that they knew by previous experience or by other families' experience could be available to them. And um, this includes a navigation around what uh, that, is, that is not at all unique to aspects of biomedical practice today. What tests are needed and why do you, why do you need certain kinds of reassurances that come from a machine or why do you want them versus the kinds of reassurances that come from having a senior practitioner take your pulse? Great. 
So among the many other really notable moments in this chapter, and there's a really wonderful account of your teaching an English class and discussing mm. the um, the social, the personal, the medical, the, the material ramifications of a recent earthquake, um, as that comes up in the context of language learning, which is itself a really interesting metaphor and example of the kinds of translations on many levels that are happening in the book. But in addition to that, one of the really interesting moments here is an example of something that comes up also later on in the book. And this is a moment where you talk about a prevailing concern with climate change in mm. a way that for me was really interesting and really surprising um, in a way because it's not the kind of question that I thought to bring. Um, to the book, right? So it was really pleasantly surprising and actually made me think about the history of Materia Medica in a completely different way. Um, and I'm really grateful for that. So for listeners um, who also may not immediately bring to or think to bring to the study of of medicine and the history of medicine, the ethnography of medicine, a concern with global warming, um, can you talk a little bit about that issue as it emerges for the people that you're working with and as it comes up as a prevailing concern in the book? Absolutely. It is a, if not counterintuitive, not a, a necessarily intuitive piece, but it's absolutely essential for everybody in this book, be they the small scale producer who still goes out and harvests um, his own uh, plants or, or animal or mineral products to these larger scale institutions. Um, when you have a medical system that is premised, at least in part, on the use of wild-crafted uh, uh, ingredients that part of, part of their potency, part of their capacity to produce efficacy comes from the particular environments in which they're grown. And you have those environments being pretty radically transformed by uh, by climate change and also by patterns of uh, harvesting or over harvesting, you realize just how uh, essential the link is between climate health or, or ecological health and the health of human beings. And so, in different parts of the book, really, this this issue comes up. Um, be it folks talking about how um, a place where they particularly uh, where they used to go to, to, to gather a particularly important ingredient, um, they no longer can find. Two um, questions about other forms of environmental pollution that are potentially impacting uh, ingredients that may uh, look okay, but for whom you have to ask other kinds of questions about uh, about quality by virtue of the ways that the environment around those ingredients are changing. Um, and th there are a number of other uh, examples of that, um, not just in this in this second chapter, but throughout. Great. Thank you so much, Sienna. Now, as we move to Chapter 3, Chapter 3 looks at the ideas of lineage and legitimacy, and it uses these ideas to explore how learning Tibetan medicine, how state support and recognition of this practice produce forms of cultural and economic capital. Now, the chapter is going to go on to argue that standardized regulations of all kinds, including moral precepts about the behavior of healers, including state-approved curricula, including medical licensing. All these regulations are rooted in very particular histories and particular environments. 
Now, you look at various contexts in this chapter, and we could honestly spend the entire rest of the time just talking about this chapter. It's so rich, and there's so much going on here. What I want to do is just uh, drop a few crumbs here for listeners so that they're aware of what's going on and then ask you about something that actually comes up toward the end. So, Sure. Um, in many different ways, you're looking at turning around and exploring the question, what makes an Amchi a legitimate healer in the context of a village or within a government-supported institution of Tibetan medicine? And you look at the ways that sources of legitimacy are or are not the same and how important lineage is to garnering legitimacy in these various different contexts. Um, you explore, among various other phenomena here, situations in Nepal in which Tibetanness is actually associated with cultural backwardness. You look at the politically sensitive issues here. You look at the relationships between um, Tibetan medicines, uh, traditional medicines and NGOs. But toward the end of the chapter, one of the things that you do um, here is really, really quite striking. And this is bringing us into the dissertation of the, or the basically the equivalent of a dissertation defense or a PhD defense at a Tibetan medical college in Lhasa. Mm. This is a really striking moment because, among other things, it encapsulates not just these issues of legitimacy and lineage, but also issues of gender dynamics, which, yes. which uh, you know, this is a really important theme throughout the book. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this moment and um, what elements of this speak to larger issues at stake in this part of the book. Sure. Well, uh, I mean, I think you've you've hit on on immediately on the reason why I chose to include this. Um, much of this chapter focuses on, in some ways, the tensions between internal uh, and internalized understandings of legitimacy uh, and um, more externalized or um, state-mandated frames for uh, evaluative frames. But uh, in the part of this chapter that is about my friend and colleague Minky during her, her defense, it was really a combination of both of, of those things. She, um, and in the context of, of highly gendered dynamics, um, I think the, the challenge in sitting in that room watching her go through the defense was in part the, the and it showed on her face at the time, but the constraints that she felt she was under in order to try to get everything she had to say about this topic that was still very much filled with questions for her, um, distilled in a way that would be equivalent to uh, a passing, you know, a passing set of marks from her senior male colleagues um, or, or teachers, and to at the same time. Um, basically show that um, that there are deep internal debates around what should count as legitimate knowledge within an inner circle of elite practitioners. And that's a kind of dynamic that, um, that is rarely shown um, uh, to, to people outside of Tibetan medicine, but that was so central to, to Mingi's experience and, and trying to raise, in a sense, taboo questions uh, about um, knowledge transmission or about how, how we know what we know about key parts of Tibetan medical theory and um, to have people listen or dismiss her was um, uh, a very high-stakes moment. 
Thank you. Now, as we move to um, the next part of the book, we move to a chapter, or the next um, chapters of the book, rather. We move to a chapter that draws on fieldwork from Kathmandu, Mustang, and Chai province and focuses on what happens in small private clinics and on how individuals narrate their own experiences of illness. So you draw out a theme here of uh, mapping illness, Mm. which speaks to what you um, refer to here to in terms of what Susan Sontag calls the kingdom of the sick. So I'll just um, mention some of these questions that you're looking at here. And this is taken from the book itself. So the chapter is looking at how social ecologies are maintained and transformed through migration and the experience of, of modernity, how medicines are circulated among people in Nepal, in China, in the U.S. and their families, and how specific diseases and patterns of illness are linked to material, to cosmological, and to place-based understandings of the causes of health problems and causes in many different ways and in many different registers. Now, among the more um, really affecting and striking moments in this chapter are two vignettes in which you are introducing us to two different individuals who are narrating their own experiences of their illness and linking those up to some sort of larger structures of various sorts. One of the women um, that you narrate is a woman in Qinghai province that um, you describe from a, an encounter in July 2010 who describes her illness as being sent to her. I wonder, could you talk a little bit about this case and this woman? Because this really encapsulates a lot of the kinds of um, phenomena, for me at least, that are happening in this chapter in terms of her own description, how you identified her illness, how she is linking up regions that we might otherwise not associate with each other, science and religion, and all of that's happening really in this one um, vignette. And so could you introduce her for us and talk a little bit about her? Sure. So the person in question was at the time of the interview, 67 years old and uh, was suffering from uh, what sort of came to the surface as what, what, what biomedicine would call Parkinson's. Um, but for her, there were that that didn't mean anything either obviously in english but but also in uh in chinese and she she talked about um a whole range of different moments in her in her life that she correlated with um this this shaking um which was the the primary symptom but she she talked about it first in terms of you know where she had to go to try and get treatment and how confusing and expensive that was, uh, how she didn't know the, the name of what she was suffering from, but she pulled out her pills and we saw that it was um, uh, uh, essentially dopamine, which again confirmed my sensibility that, oh yes, maybe this is Parkinson's, but, but then it, it sort of keeps distilling and keeps distilling, distilling, and she her voice cracks and and she begins to cry and we say you know should we stop the interview and then and then she you know she goes on and and talks about how um, this shaking is connected in her mind not just to uh, um, a disorder of the the bodily channels or tsa, which are often associated with neurological problems but but also with um, the, the possibility of um, 
illness um, or ill health being being sent to her by, I, and it was vague in the conversation, most likely a nefarious spirit, but also could be the negotiation between another person and said spirit. And this theme of sent illness is, you know, has a long history in medical anthropology. Um, uh, one of the main uh, examples that come to mind is the discussion of HIV early on in Haiti through Paul Farmer's work as an illness that was sent by sorcery. And you know, go back to Evans Pritchard and think about this. And um, but what was interesting to me in this case was sort of how the material world uh, unraveled and and went deeper into these 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 deeper, more, in some ways, in some ways, more substantial questions of causality, and yet equally important to her were the economics and the effective changes that this had on her life or her ability to sleep or to not sleep or um, her ability to, to pay for medications versus paying for her children's uh, tuition for, for school and, and things like that. So, um, it just was a good example of showing how illness operates. It's at all of these different registers, really. That's right. And I think the economics of the issue, this is something that recurs as a theme throughout the book as well. It's the importance of cost and of value and of money, frankly, um, to, yep. in shaping what's happening in a lot of these cases in a way that's really, really, really striking. Now, this um, leads us to this next part of the book. And chapters five through seven look specifically at the construction of different kinds of value when we're talking about uh, materia medica in particular. Chapter five um, considers the implementation of um, what you call here and what, what is called more generally good mm. manufacturing processes. And that's capital G, capital M, capital P for listeners who are unfamiliar with this um, concept, GMP we'll call it, and related practices and sort of looks at the consequences of this rubric and the practices that go alongside it and with it on the production of Tibetan medicines. So because this is a really striking part of the book, I'm left with this image of this Irish venture capital guy mm. um, and will have that with me for a while. And I'll just tantalizingly leave that out there for listeners. You have to read the book so that you can also meet the Irish venture capital guy. Um, but can you talk a little bit about this concept of GMP and how and why it's central to the kind of work that this chapter is doing within the larger context of the arguments of the book? Sure. Um, so, so GMP uh, became for me during, especially during my the two years of living in Lhasa for my PhD, a um, it functioned in so many different ways, or it came to mean so many different things. On the one hand, it was this set of regulations that were when you actually read them. It's not that they were innocuous, but they were relatively vague enough that um, uh, that factories could potentially have sort of molded them into a set of uh, operating procedures that were relatively uh, finely tuned to the idiosyncrasies and the the important elements of Tibetan medical production, but they they came to operate as ideology, uh, and that's part of what I argue in this chapter that they um, and as um, uh, a boogeyman of sorts for uh, Tibetans who were trying to navigate the the scaling up of their uh, their uh, 
materia medica uh, and medicinal production uh, for commercial purposes. They became a proxy for all that was wrong with standardization. They became a metaphor for a kind of uh, internal colonization of Tibetan uh, medicine by not only Chinese-style biomedicine, but also, to a certain extent, by uh, state-sanctioned TCM, uh, and in a way that that often mirrored uh, um, ethnic and nationalist arguments about the place of Tibet's, uh, Tibetans in Tibet or Tibetans in China. Um, but they, these, these practices evoked really huge questions around uh, how you know that what you produce is of quality and will have the efficacious or the beneficial um, uh, effects that, that one hopes when one produces a medicine. And um, it, it's also a space that connects Tibetan uh, medicine to much larger histories of standardization and um, regulation of medical production generally. I mean, going back to things like um, the the creation of the Safe Food and Drug Act in, in the U.S. in the early 20th century and to all of the, the good intentions behind trying to control for things, to control for quality, and yet what can go so terribly wrong when the, the, the control apparatuses themselves become the stamp of quality, but the thing itself becomes, if not empty, then um, not necessarily good enough um, and uh, becomes more uh, uh, a fetishized commodity than something that has therapeutic value. And it's not to say that that is what is always or only happening with Tibetan commercially produced Tibetan formulas today, but that's the dynamic and the set of fears that, that um, punctuated this, this moment in um, uh, the, you know, the GMP production uh, in, in Tibet. And uh, the other thing here is that when I was living in Lhasa in, in 2003, 2004, um, a state mandated, there was a state mandated deadline that uh, factories had to conform to these new regulations or be closed. And so that's sort of where the, the boogeyman element came into this or, or the need to fabric, fabricate the look of uh, uh, what GMP was supposed to be about and yet still be asking all of these internal questions about whether or not this was making their medicines better or worse. Great. Thank you very much. And I'll just mention for listeners who may not yet have had a chance to read the book also um, a couple of other things that come out of this chapter that may not um, be obvious to somebody who's looking at the title or a brief description of a book um, on uh, Tibetan medicine, and that is you use this issue of the GMP to open out into larger discussions in this chapter, too, of governmentality and of capitalism with Chinese characteristics. And so mm. there are larger implications for how we understand the social, economic, um, cultural, political, and conceptual frames within which this is happening. That's really, really interesting, whether or not um, a reader is inherently interested in medicine and medical practice. This is about much more than medicine on some level. Or yeah, it, uh, it becomes something that's also about consumptive desires and the place of Buddhism or Tibet in people's imagined landscapes of, of, of what, what or who those things are. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. And it's one of the things, one of the many 
reasons that I think this book is going to be um, not just great to read, but also really interesting and important to assign in the context of seminars and the context of um, discussion groups. So well done. Really great part of Thanks. the Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so as we move to the next chapter, chapter six looks at how Amchi interact with conservation and development practitioners policies and projects, specifically in a region of Yunnan province called Shangri-La. And there's also ethnographic work here that comes from experiences in Nepal and in Bhutan um, as well. So the chapter, among the other, the many things that it does, you take us into a conference in Han, you take us into a meeting in Nepal between WWF, not World Wrestling World Wildlife Federation officers who are trying to um, uh, initiate and help guide you and others through a grant proposal, um, which involves redefining or packaging the, the kind of rhetoric of and the definition of Tibetan medicine in, in really interesting ways. There's a lot going on here. One of the things, though, that's going on here that I want to ask you about, because this is um, two things, actually, because these are conceptually, I think, this, this is another example of the ways that these chapters really speak to not just what's happening conceptually in terms of Tibetan medicines and healing practices, but also phenomena in which they're embedded that have that are potentially um, really, really interesting also to people who don't necessarily think of themselves as, as working on or reading about medicine regularly. So I'll get to what those are. Um, the chapter links medical anthropology and political ecology by looking at how the role of these healthcare providers and transmitters of Tibetan medicines, how their knowledge intersects with involvement, as I said, in conservation or development. So there's a term here that's really interesting that you take on and explore that I, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about, and that's the idea of conservation. How does conservation um, function in this chapter? How is it understood by the actors that you're talking about? And in what way is that important? Or like I said, or not, perhaps this is mm. just an idiosyncrasy of my own reading, but is mm. that important to what's going on here? Well, it's a really good question. I think um, part of the issue, and, and in a way this speaks to themes of translation as well, but part of why uh, the doctors that I work with in these different contexts get um, pulled into conservation discourse or into actual uh, uh, ICDPs or integrated conservation and development projects or programs is that they have knowledge um, that uh, not only of plants but of also landscapes, um, landscapes of disease as well as landscapes of uh, Materia Medica. Um, but I think that conservation in and of itself is, is for them and for me, uh, a tricky term um, because uh, on the one hand, uh, I, I would say that um, some of the doctors that I work with try to latch on to the idea of, of conservation or even preservation um, of plants and also of their own practice because of the different kinds of political, social, economic threats that they that they are under uh, under or or the kinds of ecological threats that Materia Medica are under. But the challenge, of course, in the term conservation or in the ways that um, it gets used is that again it can be like GMP or like uh, a standard curriculum, it can too quickly or too uh, uh, 
in a too much in a totalizing way box people's practice in and this comes out uh as i'm talking to one of my doctor friends about the use of musk which is a um a rare and in some cases endangered ingredient um that uh should be used in a number of tibetan formula um and we have this really interesting back and forth about even though he's been involved for many years in conservation projects, how he would still make the choice, if he had to make the choice, of, of getting even a small amount of real musk to put into a formula he was creating, uh, as opposed to um, a, a substitute, either a plant substitute or, or even musk that was coming from, uh, from deer that were being raised more in captivity. Um, because... That's what is going in his mind to make the best, most potent medicines to uh, have the best possible effect on his patients. And for him, the the moral buck uh, stopped there. And um, so, and, and then at the same time, I think people in this chapter and in, in other interactions I've had are very conscious of the potential for, for lack of a better term, hypocrisy in ideas of conservation that somehow, you know, you conserve or preserve or put into a box people who have uh, less power or places that are more marginal. And that doesn't require people who are overusing resources to change their behavior or, or um, how they use things. And this comes up in, in a set of dynamics around um, Coca-Cola in this chapter and also the kind of commodity fetishism stuff in the previous chapter with, with boutique Tibetan formulas that are being sold uh, on the Chinese market. Great. Thank you so much. And, and um, I'll just kind of highlight something that you've said uh, as part of your discussion, which is this phrase substitution or this word substitution. Another mm. really interesting thing that's happening in this chapter is a really thoughtful interrogation of the idea of and the epistemology of substitution. Sort of what does it mean to even claim that something is a substitute for something else and the, the different kinds of frames that that's embedded within. Um, I also really thought that was a really wonderful aspect of what's going on here. Right. So as we come to the last body chapter before the conclusion, we come to a super, super fascinating part of this story. Um, this is the chapter that follows the social life or the biography of a Tibetan formula, which is an 11 ingredient compound used during childbirth. This is super, super fascinating. So I'm going to definitely <laughs> ask you a little bit about this. This formula became one of two drugs examined in the first hospital-based randomized clinical trial in Tibet in this hospital that you worked in. So could you, I'm just going to put this out here and ask you um, in as broad as terms as possible, can you talk a little bit about what's going on in this case and the aspects of what's going on here in this chapter with this trial that you feel are most illustrative of the larger arguments that you're trying to make in this chapter? Sure. Um, well, I think in a way this this was the logical last full chapter of the book because it brings in a sense, every single other piece that came before it together through through the story of this one medicine. Um, and what I mean by that is that in in the story of how this one formula um, uh, is historically positioned, um, is 
is actually produced, um, how people think about it, how people use it. Um, we see issues around um, patient experience, um, around modes of, of uh, uh, legitimacy, you know, where, where and how is it legitimate to use this um, medicine, but also what kinds of practitioners can make it or should make it and, and can prescribe it. Um, it gets at issues related to stuff in the previous chapter about the ingredients themselves, where they're sourced, um, how that is changing, um, and to the core issues in the GMP chapter about how do you produce a formula that can be comparable or be thought of as a potential comparison with a, you know, a biomedical chemical compound, which is in, in many ways the, the epitome of a standardized formulation. And um, how do you do all of this in a, in a context in which there isn't a precedent for this kind of clinical research and where research itself and the ethics of research and the question of what research is for is also very, um, there are a lot of competing or, or um, counter, you know, point, counterpoint kind of narratives going through this about um, what is good clinical practice or good or ethical practice. Um, and so the, the um, and what kinds of then real world implications do these kinds of um, uh, forays into high science for a quote unquote traditional medicine mean? What do they do to its value? What do they do to the ways that, uh, that these formulas then get positioned vis-a-vis biomedical institutions or, or, or other biomedicines. And so um, basically the story goes through, you know, the, the discovery, if you will, of this one particular medication and, and um, how it comes to be thought of as an equivalent or as a possible comparison to a biomedical drug called myosoprostol. Um, the, the really uh, uncanny connections or parallels between Shishe Chukchik, which is the Tibetan drug, and, and myosoprostol, both are, uh, help the uterus c- to contract. Both can be used um, for their abortofacient quality in other words, to help induce early term abortion. So there's a there's an interesting morality uh, set of questions there, um, and um, and then also though this question of uh, what does it mean to make a one to one comparison to say okay this medicine is is equivalent to this other one, and to look at all the different ways that the, the, the Tibetan doctors were basically telling us they're not. And, and we can set up a trial in the best possible way to capture their samenesses and to see how they do in relation to each other, but that um, it is a certain kind of violence, not to use too strong a word, but to see one single medicine uh, in isolation or even beyond that to see to see one ingredient as um, the active ingredient as we like to do in um, uh, in uh, aspects of biochemistry or biomedicine. Rather, there are a continuum of things that create uh, uh, the capacity for uh, a desired outcome or create efficacy. And, and then the other piece of this chapter is really about the kind of interpersonal relationships between the Tibetan practitioners on this project and the Western practitioners on this project and um, how this all coalesces around um, the experiences of 
um, primarily rural, but also included in the end um, urban uh, urban Tibetan women who were who were giving birth and and um, and the the stakes involved there are high in part because of the the truths and the stories about um, life and death uh, for for Tibetan women and children um, in a kind of global public health sense. Um, so so it does all of those things. But I think my favorite part of uh, of this whole story was really the ways that my colleague Minky, who the readers met in an earlier chapter does this incredible dance of, of pharmacology and history and translating uh, science across culture when she figures out how to produce um, a version of this 11 formula, 11 ingredient formula for the specific purposes of this clinical trial. Um, and that, I think her brilliance in those moves um, really illustrate the flexibility that is inherent in Tibetan medical practice, but also the ways that standards of all sorts are applied all the time to uh, what it means to, to make a good formula, even if those standards would be recognized as non-standardized by a biomedical uh, viewpoint. And a couple of other really, just to kind of mention for listeners, because this is a super, super rich chapter, and there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on. Um, the chapter also brings out the ways that religion and science are implicated mm. in Western medical practice by looking carefully at the phenomenon of the placebo and the role of the placebo here in this uh, particular clinical trial itself. And also there's this wonderful depiction of um, having a certain subset of the drugs in the child blessed. Right. What the, um, what the implications of that are. Do you want to talk just very briefly about that part of it? Because it also seems to be a really crucial part of what's going on here, this question of what it is and what the implications are of blessing a subset of these pills. Sure. Um, yeah, it was a fascinating moment where we had decided, we meaning myself and my Tibetan colleagues uh, working um, on this project, had decided that it would be of benefit to have a mendrup or a medicine empowerment ritual for the special special batches of this drug, Shishetuk-Chik, that had been created based on Mingi's rewriting of the formula for this clinical trial. And so we um, figure out a way to bring in um, uh, a high Tibetan Lama who, who um, does these kinds of ritual empowerments a lot to perform this. And um, this is something he's done also for other medicinal factories. And um, there's this just it was a really in some ways hilarious but also very uh important exchange that goes on where you know the Rinpoche the the, the Lama is asking um why are you doing this and why are you only blessing this one medicine? And, and my colleague Minky talks about how she essentially answers by saying, well, Tibetan medicine is being known in the world in these new ways and we now need to test it and show that it works according to these other standards. And, um, and uh, he says, but why are you only using one medicine? And she explains, you know, the kind of narrowing process of the RCT. Um, and, uh, and they go through this whole thing about um, the placebo and, and whether or not they should bless the placebo, which had also been created. And um, in the end, they decide um, 
to bless both this new drug and the placebo, in part because the whole idea of a placebo is is kind of nonsensical, this idea that there's just a... Um, uh, a medicine to heal the mind, as the literal translation goes from the Tibetan, and yet at the same time to say that well, any any blessed substance is going to have beneficial qualities. So, even if the women in this trial who get the placebo, in a sense, only get the placebo, at least we know that they're going to be getting something that's also got some ritual efficacy to it. So, okay, let's go ahead and let's bless them all, and um, uh, so. And, and, and also just really reflective, uh, interesting comments from the Lama, for instance, about, you know, how we're describing the placebo. Uh, and he says, according to the teachings of the medicine Buddha, every substance on earth has the potential to be medicine. He didn't say this, but they also have the potential to be poison, which is a theme that comes out in Chinese medicine too, I think. Um, and he says, so if this no medicine medicine puts the patient's mind at ease, then how is it not medicine? And, you know, it's just sort of really un, un- unraveling the kinds of logical assumptions that go along with this conventional use of a placebo at this point in um, the practice of an RCT. Um, and, and there's another funny, similar moment around the idea of randomization and blinding and the ways that these two are truly ritualized practices that we take to be the pinnacle of scientific practice, but that are also about a certain kind of clinical or scientific magic. That's right. Thank you so much. And I just want to direct listeners to that chapter, especially, but really to the whole book, because there's so much going on here that's really fascinating. So Sienna, I've taken up a lot of your time. I just have one final question before we move to our closing and my two final, final, final questions for you. And that's a question about the conclusion. Um, And it's really just to talk a little bit about a central concept that you bring up in the conclusion as a way of drawing all this together. And that's a concept that I alluded to at the very beginning of our conversation and that now we're at the end so that I'll ask you to talk a little bit about. And this is the concept of translational science. Can you say a little bit about that and and how that um, encapsulates what you're doing here? Sure. Well, um, I first encountered the term translational science when I first saw that or translational medicine. I got really excited because I thought, yes, you know, exactly. And this was years ago. You know, this, this, this so captures the, the different kinds of challenges that I'm, that I'm encountering ethnographically or the ways that people I work with move across from theory to practice. Um, and, you know, of course, as I learned more about the concept and, and learned in a sense about the narrowness um, or the specificity of that con- that that concept as it's often used you know from from bench to bedside uh, kind of thinking um, I I then began to sort of go back to it and say well what if we were to to push this idea a little bit more and say, you know, translational science or translational medicine isn't just about um, moving something from a lab to the marketplace or, or, or um, uh, from the lab to the bedside, but rather that um, almost any kind of uh, medical practice or, or healing practice is translational um, and that 
that part of what that translation is about are, you know, trying to get at um, what I what I say in the conclusion, the ethical ambiguities, the political risks and the social and ecological impacts of um defending and transforming any any medical practice but specifically here thinking about um what it means to do that with a with a quote-unquote traditional medicine um and so in some senses the conclusion is that uh the entire book uh, and this whole story is is a, a chronicling of types of translational science um and that uh maybe if we you know, keep thinking in that vein of uh, the potentiality. Yes, it's an ambiguous term, but there's a lot of potential in there um, for thinking then about um, uh, new forms of interdisciplinary work or even just being more conscious about the moments when those translations are occurring and not necessarily assuming that one thing is equivalent to another thing or to, to, to glossing over moments of translation, but instead to really embrace them um, and, and dive more deeply in. Great. Well, Sienna, thank you so much. We've talked about a lot of the book, but of course there's a lot about the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular that we didn't cover, but that you'd like to point out, and especially perhaps for listeners who haven't yet had an opportunity to read the book? Um, the only thing I think uh, I would want to to say at the end is is something we haven't talked about at all because it's not so much or directly about the content, but that is um, uh, about the, who the book is dedicated to. Um, in a, in a preface, I talk about my, my friend and colleague, Yeshi Lama, who, uh, Yeshi Chojun Lama, who I dedicate this book to. And she, along with some wonderful other people who were also mentors of mine, died in a, in a quite tragic helicopter crash in, in Nepal in 2006. And, um, uh, Yeshi really embodied, I would say, so many of the best qualities of um, of uh, not only anthropology but also um, engaged practice in its fullest sense of the term. She navigated and translation. Actually, she navigated between the worlds of being, you know, the daughter of a an important Tibetan Lama who had fled into exile via Bhutan, and and you know, navigating that space on the one hand to being educated at, at Middlebury College here in Vermont, as well as at uh, uh, um, SOAS in in London, and navigating between different ways of knowing the world um, and working with practitioners of Tibetan medicine in a way that always um, felt not only respectful, but just so deeply engaged. So she was a friend, but she was also really an exemplar or a mentor, I would say to me, as I uh, dove into my own relationships with this complex uh, terrain of Tibetan practice and, and the people whose uh, in, in, in many different ways whose lives um, are formed or shaped by it and who depend on it. Thank you so much. So now that the book is out, and congratulations on a fantastic book, what's, Thanks. Next, what's next for you? Are there any projects that are currently inspiring you? I'm working on a few different things right now. Um, 
one of which is actually a study that takes me more into the realm, uh, different realms of medical anthropology and, and science and technology studies and less into Tibet, and that is working um, on a, an ethnographic study uh, here at Dartmouth at the medical school here, um, looking at the ways that medical students are uh, enculturated and navigate through the process of becoming doctors at a moment. There have been other studies um, that have done that as well, but this is sort of looking at it at a moment when the um, the curriculum of the the medical school itself is undergoing radical reform and the larger political economy in which um, doctors are being trained uh, and going out to practice are is also being um, pretty radically challenged and transformed at least in in this part of North America and so I'm working on that and also on um, uh, Projects that 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 don't have Tibetan medicine at their core, but that still intersect with Tibetan medical practice in different ways, specifically around um, maternal and child health um, issues about uh, fertility and uh, reproductive histories, reproductive uh, loss as well. Um, and that's coming out of a collaborative project that I've been working on with um, a biological anthropologist, Cynthia Bell, and a fellow cultural anthropologist and demographer, Jeff Childs. Well, great. Thank you so much. We'll look forward to reading that work as well, and I'll look forward to talking with you about those books when they come up. Uh, great. Thank you so much, Shannon. It's really been a pleasure, and congratulations again. Thanks so much. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.